Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. Hear these words from Mark 1, verses 35 through 39. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So I don't know how your morning began, but to to catch a phrase from Rob Stewart from several years ago, not knowing how your morning began, but mine began at 7 o'clock with a call from Barry Stevens saying, can you preach this morning? And here I am. In all seriousness, Barry fell this morning and hurt his eye. He's actually currently in surgery. Um, and they're checking out to see how it's going. So please be continued, be uh, prayerful about his eye, about his recovery, what the doctors are doing right now uh, to help him. Uh, Debbie's keeping us posted and stuff. And so if we hear anything that's uh, significant, we'll let you guys know. But be praying for them. The one thing I do want to ask um, is that you try not to inundate them with a bunch of texts because many people know Barry and Debbie very well and it would kind of overwhelm them if they started getting a bunch of stuff. Give them a little bit of time. Um, and then feel free to check up on them, uh, specifically going through Debbie, because obviously Barry's not going to be looking at his phone for a little bit. Uh, but I do want to pray for him for the amazing ways that he has stepped from here uh, into our lives um, as we sit here to this morning and the past. But just to pray for what God's doing and uh, to heal him quickly. So let's pray. Father God, we come before you lifting your son, lifting your servant. And God, we, we know that you do amazing things. Not that you can do, but you do amazing things. And you work in all things. So God, we pray that you are doing amazing work in Barry this morning. As he's having surgery on his eye, God, I pray that you restore him and bring him to full health. I pray that you're with the doctors who are doing the surgery. God, just let your spirit wash over him, your healing spirit wash over him, and let the spirit that is in Barry that is binding all of us together be lifted up in him and to comfort him and Debbie as they walk through this. We thank you that we get to enjoy the benefit of your presence and your glory through Barry, through this church body. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his life. And we thank you for the way you live through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and the whole church says, amen. So a little bit heavy, troubled start for us this morning, so I kind of want to tell a little bit of a funny story on myself. 
So this past Wednesday night, we had what we call campfire worship. And campfire worship is literally what it sounds. We have a bunch of campfires. So we have fire pits out there. We had six different fire pits going, and we were able to roast marshmallows, eat some s'mores. If you missed it in the worship time, you missed it. I'm sorry. It was awesome. But I was out there about five o'clock, four or five o'clock, getting the fire started so they'd be nice and hot to just melt the marshmallows right off the sticks. So I was out there, so stoking all these fires, getting them going, and we went until about eight o'clock that night. And so afterwards, I'm going and I'm putting out all the fires afterwards. Sam was helping me. And as we're doing this, of course, throughout stoking them and throughout putting them out, there's smoke just billowing all around me. So, of course, by the end of the night, I smell like a chimney. I smell horrible. So we had a meeting right after. So I didn't get home until between 10 and 1030. I just I know the kids should have been in bed. I know that Erin was in bed. I figured she was asleep. And so we pull up. I pull up in the car, and it smelled so bad that the next morning I went out to my car, and I could still smell it in my car. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to be smart about this, which we'll come back to that in a little bit. So I think I'm going to be smart about this. So I open the garage door. I park in front of the house, and normally I just walk into our front door, which has a little code. You just enter and you walk in, and normally I go in that way when I get home. Well, I thought I'm going to be smart about this and go into the garage, close the garage. So I go in, close the garage door, and I strip off these smelly, nasty clothes. And I put them on a chair that's in the garage. So there I am, and I'm sorry for the mental pictures you're all going to have. Hopefully they're good. So there I'm standing there, and my boxers, and my boxers. I have a backpack in one hand and a blanket in the other, and I go to the door to unlock the door to to the house, and I go, door's locked, which is not abnormal. When we go to bed at night, Aaron always locks the back door going into the garage, and she has every expectation, I'm going to come in through the front door, right? So, Joey has two options. Let's talk through those two options for a moment. It's important to understand these two options. Option number one, logical, go back over, put on the, the stinky clothes, go out the garage Go into the house, close the front door, go around to the garage, go back into the garage, strip off the clothes, put them in the chair, close the garage door, go inside, we're done, right? Logical. There is another choice. There's choice number two. Can you guess which one I chose? (laughs) Those who know me, you know what I chose. Of course, I chose number two. Number two is I'm standing there in my underwear, and the front door is not that far away. It's 10, 1030 at night. It's dark out. Nobody's going to be able to see me. We don't have any street lights right in front of our house, so we're good. We're good to go. I can take off and go. So I decided option number two. So I put on my backpack, on my bare skin, grab my blanket and my skivvies, <clears throat> and I open the garage door. Oh, mistake number one begins. What happened when I opened the garage door? The lights come on inside the garage. So I get, I get down behind Aaron's car that's hiding in the garage, and I just sit there. And I'm waiting, and I'm thinking to myself, option one sounds better right now. Finally, the lights go off in the garage. So I move to the edge of the garage door, and I stop, and I look. I see no one coming. Nobody's walking their dogs. It's all quiet. I don't hear anybody talking. No dogs barking. I think I'm good. I'm going to step out and run to the front door, right? Intelligence. The funniest part is you're listening to me preach right now. 
So I step out. I take two steps. Motion sensor floodlight. Right on me. It's like a prison movie when the spotlight hits the prisoner. That was me. I step out. Lights go on. I stop and I take off for the front door. So I get to the front door. As I'm heading to the front door, still in the lights of the front lights, I realize that my loving wife turned on the front porch lights so that I could see when I get to the front door. So from the garage to the front door, I'm in complete light. Anybody who happens to be out, which nobody sent any notes to the police yet, so I think we're okay. I run up to the front door in the light and I see the front porch light on and guess what else I see? our ring doorbell that has a camera that videos every bit of motion. I see the little light go off. Put in the code, go inside the house, close the door, lock the door. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. That just happened. So I walk back to the bedroom, still carrying my backpack and my blanket. I walk to the bedroom door and I'm sitting there and Aaron looks up at me and goes, did someone mug you between the church building and the house? I proceed to tell her what happened and she's howling, laughing at me at what just happened. Now, a few of you would have thought about something that I didn't think about until the very end of first service. Scott Gwynn gets up here doing elder's blessing, and I really should have told you his name because you'd have known who it was anyways doing an elder's blessing after last week. Scott Gwynn gets up here at first service and says, we depend upon Joey to give us so many thoughts about how to do ministry and things that we do. But what I don't understand How in the world did he not think to take the blanket that's in his arm and wrap it around him as he goes from the garage? Didn't even enter my mind. Josh Stevens came up to me after service and a few people were asking him about it. And he said, if you know Joey, I'm not sure it would have mattered if he thought about it. Touche, Josh. I completely agree with that. So here's the thing. Sometimes whether we realize or, oh, oh, that's right, the video. So, um... Here's the video of me running. I'm just kidding. I'm going to show you a video of me running. Y'all look too. That's the worst part. Y'all looked up there. Even those who were shocked and said, I'm not going to look, were like. Sometimes, whether we often admit it or not, trying to make it naked in this world sometimes, as vulnerable, naked, and we try to do it in the dark as if no one can see it. But a light is always shined on the most vulnerable parts of our lives. And those vulnerable, naked places do not stay in the dark for very long because God does not want them to sit in the dark. And so sometimes it's a ring doorbell that helps him. Two weeks ago, prior to the series, we asked you to respond to the question, what is unsettling about following Jesus to you? What makes you vulnerable? Where does the light shine in the darkness? By Jesus' life, when you read about it, experience it. Each week in this little video we had right before I walked out, uh, before the sermons, we're highlighting some of the things that you said to us, some of your responses. What's unsettling to you? And included some comments like, I have to completely rely on him to take care of me. Giving everything away and trusting that he will take care of it. It's hard to accept that I'm forgiven. I feel so unworthy. Or the thought of persecution. Or some of the comments from last week, this Messiah is unsettling because he sees the things that I hide from everyone else. This Messiah is unsettling to those of us who live with the illusion 
that we are in control, that we can do things in the dark without light being shined upon us. So everything you're about to hear is really Barry's sermon. We got in the habit about three years ago, maybe four years ago, of every time one of us writes a sermon, we put it into a box, that we, a Dropbox computer file that we can access and use. So when Barry called me, I knew it was there. So pretty much, other than some personal anecdotes, no, it was not Barry running naked between the garage and the front door. Some personal anecdotes, this is really Barry's sermon that you're hearing this morning. So if you like it, it's Barry. If you don't like it, I delivered it bad. Don't blame him. So as we read the Gospel of Mark, if you read it carefully, we may just discover this Messiah <clears throat> excuse me, is unsettling on many fronts. Last week, Barry walked us through Mark 8, 27 through 30, and there's a paragraph there, that paragraph that is a significant turning point in the Gospel of Mark. As a matter of fact, is the exact center point in that Gospel. It could easily be argued that this moment in the life of Jesus and the life of his disciples could be the whole point of the gospel of Mark. That everything is leading up to this point and everything that comes after it is as a result of what happens in these moments. There's a paragraph where Jesus asks his disciples, what are people saying about him? Who do people say I am, he says. <clears throat> Some say you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist or one of the prophets. And he says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And that's a, an amazing question for even us today and the way we live and what we say and the way we go about our lives. Who do you say I am? In Mark, Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. In so many respects, that confession that we've been waiting to hear for eight chapters suddenly appears in the Gospel of Mark. Eight chapters that points us to the authority of Jesus, the center point of this Gospel that points us to the authority of Jesus. Eight chapters filled with incredible miracles. The feeding of 5,000, the feeding of 4,000, uh, uh, the calming of the storms, the raising of the dead, the healing of a demon-possessed man, but not just one demon, a legion of demons. Eight chapters filled with miracles. Eight chapters filled with his teaching. Eight chapters uh, filled with sharing, unsettling moments. There are several times when Jesus performs a miracle and tells the people not to tell anyone about it. Eight chapters where the power and authority of Jesus are front and center, leading the disciples to ask at that pivotal moment, who is this man? A pivotal moment that in our own lives, hopefully daily, we're answering that question to ourselves, not just walking along, but asking the question, who is this man? Is he really the Messiah? And answering that question every day rather than taking it for granted. But here's the difference. Jesus tells his disciples then, don't tell anyone. What? If you're this Messiah, let's go shout it from the mountaintops. But Jesus says, no, tell no one. Are you kidding me? That's got to be unsettling to them when this point hits and they finally realize who they've been waiting for thousands of years, this Messiah that's prophesied. Here's this guy who's going to save us from ourselves and bring us back into glory. Here's this guy. Why are we now being told we can't say anything about it? Jesus 
Peter's just made this confession that you are the Messiah. Why would you not want them to announce it to the world? But the unsettling part of what's happening in this gospel, in this chapter, doesn't stop right there. Almost in the next breath, after they declare that he is the Messiah and he confirms it, he tells his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, this guy, is going to suffer and die. This is not at all what they were anticipating. Okay, well, let, let, me, let me make sure I understand correctly. You're telling us that you're the Messiah. We've seen it, we understand it, we believe it. You're the Messiah, you're the Savior of mankind, you're the one to wipe away our sins, to give us life from death, but we can't tell anyone. I, personally, Joey, can't get my 10-year-old to not tell his mother what her birthday gift is. Can you imagine these guys and women who are hearing this story and going, we can't tell anyone? And Jesus says, oh yeah, by the way, you can't tell anyone, and we're heading to Jerusalem where I'm going to suffer and die. What? You're not going to die? That's not the plan. That's not our plan. Their understanding of Messiah would be more like a military leader. One who's going to lead them in overthrowing Rome. One who's going to lead them in reclaiming the glory they once had. A Messiah who suffers. A Messiah who dies. What are you talking about? To them, that would have been the ugliest twist of fate. We have our Messiah, and he goes away. That had to be unsettling. But Jesus did not stop there. Almost directly after that, Mark 8 continues with Jesus saying very clearly, so I'm the Messiah, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and die. Right after that, he says, but if you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. And those paragraphs become the pivot point for the structure of the gospel of Mark. The balance of this gospel not only leads us to Jerusalem where Jesus will suffer and die, but this gospel includes moment after moment, story after story, where the focus is on what it means to be a servant, on what it means to be a sacrifice, and what humility looks like. That's greatness in the kingdom of God. Not what I want, not what you want, but where Jesus is leading us. The true definition of Messiah is about willingness to serve, even at the point of laying down his life. And the challenge for us is to step across that line, that threshold, and follow. To use Paul's language in Philippians 2, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And if we're honest with ourselves and think through what that means for us, it should be pretty unsettling. Because we have to ask the question, what does that mean to deny myself, to take up my cross, to follow him? 
Jesus' teachings and his words are certainly unsettling, but what is intriguing about the gospel of Mark and how it lays out leading up to eight and then going past eight are those moments in the very life of Jesus that are unsettling. Not just his words and his teachings, which are amazing, but his life, and we seek to follow in those footsteps. Have you ever encountered someone who in their very serving, who in their own very life, just seems to be filled with God's glory. You see them and you interact with them and there's something just so different about them. Someone who just seems to be in the normal process of denying self in order to follow Jesus. Maybe a point where they're in presence, who they are, their faces just radiate with the glory of God. A guy named Lamar Bowman did that for me. Lamar was a professor at Lipscomb University. Uh, He was known around campus as the sweatshirt guy. He was known that way because if it was remotely cold, he would always wear sweatshirt, jeans, and tennis shoes. On days it was warm, he wore pants, tennis shoes, and a t-shirt, but always had a sweatshirt ready in case the classroom was cold. Everybody knew him as the sweatshirt guy. He was a professor and taught that way. Not because he wanted to buck the system, but because he lived the most simplest of lifestyles I have ever known a person to live. He held two master's degrees, one in Bible and ministry, and therefore he adjunct taught at Lipscomb at the same time, but he decided that he didn't want to teach only. He didn't want to just sit there and preach and teach in a church or in a, in a collegiate level, he, which he was really good at, but he wanted to serve in some way. So he went back, got an undergrad degree in nursing, and then a master's as a nurse practitioner, and went and worked at Vanderbilt University in the geriatric ward. And he chose that ward specifically because he wanted to be with people who were the sickest and who were on their last moments to be able to sit with them and be God's glory and presence with them. His words. Lamar's love of Jesus extended to the widow, the orphan, the sick. Lamar baptized me. And I remember coming up out of the water. Lamar was a very dry guy. And I remember coming up out of the water and seeing this smile on his face that radiated the glory of Jesus. He was Jesus so much in my life. And that glory radiated on his face because his heart and life was immersed in the glory of God. I want to describe what Barry had in his notes as this idea, this concept called the wilderness and the marketplace. And us finding ourselves in both places, being able to put aside the busyness of life, putting aside the pressures of walking alongside others, of just going about our normal days, the pressures of work, the pressures of family, the pressures of stress, all the things that go on, the good, the bad, the ugly, but being able to put them aside to be filled with the glory of God that then seeps out into the lives of the people we love and serve, and to the people that we don't love but should serve, to the people that we may call our enemies and should serve. You see, the way the gospel of Mark unfolds, as you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, his public ministry, or better put for this purpose, is his public presence, begins with his baptism his submission to the will of the Father, the Spirit of God descending upon him in the voice of heaven, declaring, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. He's surrounded by people. He's surrounded by Holy Spirit, by God in this moment. 
But then something happens. And if we really stop and think about the implications of this, it should be pretty unsettling for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Because Holy Spirit immediately sends Jesus into the wilderness where so many things unfold, where he was tempted by Satan, spent time fasting and praying. He spent time preparing for his ministry to the commodity of the kingdom, the only commodity that matters, people. And I don't think I'm stretching when I say the ministry of Jesus to people. His ministry in the marketplace would have looked very, very different had it not been for his time in the wilderness, the time he removed himself from the busyness. But stay with me for a moment because this rhythm doesn't end there. Jesus comes from the wilderness to begin his ministry. So he has a space away from the crazy of life, comes back into the busyness of life. He announces the good news of the kingdom of God. He calls his first disciples. He teaches people. He drives out demon, demons. Word is quickly spreading about who he is, what he is doing. He's engaged with ministry, interacting with people, interacting with people in ministry in, say, the marketplace. But he still maintains this rhythm. Because God, the Gospel of Mark also tells us that early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out to a solitary place, and prayed. Other texts tell us from the Gospels that Jesus would pull aside and would pray all night long. This is this rhythm of back and forth where he goes to attune himself again and again to the heart of God in order to do ministry in the lives of people, with people, for people, due to the love of his with God. This rhythm is where he begins again and again to be filled with the glory of God in order to share, to pour out that glory with others. Now that may not sound too unsettling to us because we hear it all the time. Being in God's presence to be filled up, being in other presence to pour out. But I think many of us struggle to find that kind of rhythm, to find that kind of discipline because life is so busy. Life is so noisy and we allow it to be that way. We have, have often become so accustomed to the busyness and to the noise that the quiet of being in the presence of God is unsettling to some of us, most of us, maybe all of us. And in those spaces where we don't have the quiet, being filled with him is where Satan can find all kinds of cracks in our busy lives. We don't have a rhythm of spending time in the wilderness with God. We begin to think we know what God wants. It's what I want. And then temptations, sin, burnout, all begin to creep in. But the flip side of that is also true. Those who believe that being spiritual is only about isolating yourself— Community is important, but it's not that important. I'm right with God. I spend time praying and studying, educating myself on who this God is and what he wants. And then we have to <clears throat> miss out on his call because we're so busy educating ourselves, we miss it the, the whole purpose of why he's educating us. It's a step into other people's lives. And for those of us who just kind of isolate ourselves, the wilderness is only for wilderness' sake. It's all about creating space in our lives for both, pursuing this kind of rhythm. 
Lynn Anderson described a story of Moses a number of years ago, a story that comes from Exodus 32 through 34, where Moses comes down from the mountain of God where he received the Ten Commandments. But when he comes down, he finds the people engaged in all kinds of crazy, evil activities, idolatry, sexual immorality, and he smashes the stones. A couple chapters later, we find him back on the mountain. Now, I want you to notice the language that's used here when he comes down from the mountain. Exodus 34, starting in verse 29. When Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. There's something in that one little piece right there. They were afraid to come near him because his face radiated with God. There's something in that we should be aware of. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. Then when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was again radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went to speak with the Lord. So as Lynn described it, there's this incredible rhythm in Moses' life. He pulls aside to be with God, to be filled up again with the glory of God to the point that his face is so radiant when he comes back to the people that he has to put a veil over his face. He engages in a life of ministry, teaching, leading, serving other people. And as as Lynn put it, the glory of God seeps out. Just like the glory of God seeped out of Lamar Bowman into my life. The glory of God seeps out, but eventually you've got to pull aside to a solitary place to meet with God, to encounter the glory of God again, to be filled with the glory of God again. This beautiful rhythm, which is what the ministry of Jesus was all about. What he showed us is supposed to be our rhythm. In fact, as you think about the ministry of Jesus, yes, he is the son of God. But this son of God, as he engaged in ministry, as he served people, as he got tired, as he faced extraordinary criticism, this son of God chose to get up early in the morning, go out to a solitary place where he prayed, where he experienced again the glory of God. Before the day began, with all of its challenges, Jesus is praying. And so we're reminded of Karl Barth's statement, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world that we are a part of. Or Martin Luther who said, I have so much to do today and I cannot get on with my work and accomplishment unless I pray for three hours. That's unsettling. We carve out space in our lives to experience again the glory of God, to be filled with the glory of God, to prepare for the ministry he has for us in this world, in our everyday lives, in our work, in our rest, in our play. We create space in our lives with the full confidence that God will create space in our lives for the glory to seep out. 
We have a creative team that helps those of us up on the stage to do better what we do up here, creative ways to portray what we do. One of the teens uh, in the room when the last time we met a few weeks ago mentioned a reading she heard at a youth gathering. And while she didn't mention the person who wrote what was being read, Barry immediately knew she was talking about Corey Ten Boom. Some of you may know her story. She was a prisoner in a German concentration camp. She survived the concentration camp and afterwards wrote an autobiography titled The Hiding Place. In that book, she related how to be thankful even in a Nazi concentration camp. I just want to say that again. How to be thankful even in a Nazi concentration camp. She and her sister, Betsy, were prisoners, were led into a room, into a building big enough to accommodate maybe 400 people. She said there were 1,400 women packed together in that same room. You can only imagine how they lived there, cramped, unsanitary conditions. On top of that, she said that the room was filled with fleas. And they found themselves constantly being bitten by fleas. Fleas everywhere, biting. Fleas nesting in their hair. Their fleas were so bad that the guards didn't even come in very often because they themselves did not want to get bitten or have the fleas with them. They were finally able to persuade some of the guards to give them some scissors and they cut all the hair off their heads in order to keep the fleas from nesting there and biting them more. But here's the key to the story. Because Corey and her sister were so deeply devoted to God, because they had spent so much time in his presence and prayer, it was as if the glory of God radiated off their faces. In their lives, as they dealt with those horrible circumstances, she said that they had been praying for opportunities to study with these other women, to worship with these other women, but they never could because the guards would not let them until the fleas. The fleas got so bad, and because the guards didn't come around, they were able to begin a Bible study. And her words in the book were, thank God for the fleas. Because they carved out space in their lives to encounter God, God carved out space in their lives, in the marketplace of a German concentration camp to be the presence of Jesus to others. And the glory seeped out. Pray with me. Father, we live in a world that gives us so many advantages. And how unthankful we can often find ourselves being in this world. How often we can get wrapped up in the busyness and the noise and the crazy parts of this life that take over. So much so that for many of us, probably most of us, being in your presence and in your quiet space is unsettling and uncomfortable. God, help us to have this rhythm. Help us to begin to start into that rhythm of life that comes before you, sits in your presence, allows you to fill us up so that we can leave to go into this world and allow you to be poured out, to seep out, to be a flood in this world, not because of the words we say, but because of your presence in us. People see it and want to know why. God, help us to be more than just people who gather in a room, but a church that scatters to display your glory. 
Father, thank you that we do not walk this alone, that we can leave here and be confident in your spirit that binds us as a family, that we live a blessed life of what you've poured into us, that if someone can be blessed in a Nazi concentration camp and be thankful for that, God, how much more so can we give and be thankful for what we have? Father, we praise you for Jesus, that no matter the storms, no matter the struggles, we can find your peace in the midst of the busyness. Help us to seek that, Father. God, thank you for the fleas in our lives that shape us. We pray these things in the amazing saving grace of Jesus, our Messiah. And the church says, amen.